The more people we fully include in the economy, the faster and more prosperous it grows. Inclusion and economic growth not only aren't in contradiction, but may actually go together. Growth is actually at its best when it's most inclusive. And the more you're able to meaningfully engage and participate as workers, entrepreneurs, consumers, et cetera, you end up with an economy that is stronger and more resilient. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. One of the themes of this podcast from the very first episode is that uh, inclusion drives growth, that the more people we fully include in the economy from uh, every race and region and gender and background in every capacity as entrepreneurs and innovators and workers and well-paid consumers, the more people we fully include in the economy, the faster and more prosperous it grows. And that is grounded deeply in the economic theory that informs us. Yeah. The last 45 years of sort of economic theory and economic policy, the sort of neoliberal and neoclassical economic paradigm has taught the exact opposite. Right. That, you know, for a very long time, economists and policymakers believed that there was a trade-off between economic growth and uh, economic fairness or justice, that we could have, we could include more people, but we would do it at the expense of growth. And that made uh, inclusion effectively uh, this sort of liberal luxury to be afforded if right. and when we have growth. Uh, for moral ex- reasons, for moral we might reasons. want to do, even though they're not deserving, because clearly in the the economy gives you exactly yeah. what you deserve. You're That's always right. paid exactly what you're worth. So if we have to spend some money to include you. It's out of the goodness of our own heart. That's right. And uh, when we first adopted that inclusion narrative back in 2014, we were economic heretics. That's right. Slowly but surely, people have come around to this more general view And today, we get to talk to somebody from the McKinsey Company, the world's most prestigious uh, management consulting enterprise, about a remarkable new study that finds that if you look at the data, uh, it suggests that inclusion and economic growth not only aren't in contradiction, but may actually go together. So, so rather than uh, giving it away, Nick, in in the intro, why don't we why don't we get it straight from the horse's mouth? Absolutely, and we get to talk to J.P. Julian today, who's an associate partner in the public and social sector practice at McKinsey, and in in addition, J.P. is on the leadership team of the McKinsey Institute for Black Economic Mobility, which was recently launched and is a think tank that focuses on the economic development of black communities globally, which is really super cool. I'm J.P. Julian. I'm an associate partner at McKinsey & Company. I'm one of the leaders of McKinsey's new Institute for Black Economic Mobility. 
It was launched last year officially, and it's our internal think and do tank focused on racial equity. Uh, the other part of my life at McKinsey is spent supporting state and local governments across the country on economic development topics. The report that we wrote, The Case for Inclusive Growth, uh, really does bring together both of those parts of my life at McKinsey. Think about how do we provide and support an economy that not only works more effectively for everyone, but actually sees stronger and more resilient growth. So can you explain a little bit, JP, what you mean when you're talking about inclusion? What, what does inclusion mean in the context of an economy that works for everyone? So inclusion is really trying to understand the who and the how of the economy. So inclusive growth is really bringing together two concepts, economic growth and inclusion. So we think about growth as the size and pace of economic expansion. So how big is the economy? How fast is it growing? Inclusion really tries to answer who benefits from participates in and shares in those economic gains. And so that really answers the who. The important distinction is getting to the how. And so the reason the how is important is because through our research, we really identify that inclusive growth is not just about outcomes, as important as they are, but it's also about the process. And so as we think about and try to understand how growth happens, who decides where and how we invest, who is at the table and actually making the decisions, it really is important to think about both of those components. And so if we think about the economy as a pie, inclusive growth is both trying to understand how big the pie is, and inclusion specifically is trying to understand who gets how much of that pie, and then who gets a say in creating how the pie uh, is made, and ultimately what goes into it. So, so you're saying that inclusion is both a means and an end. Exactly. Exactly right. I know what the Econ 101 books say about this, uh, that inclusive <laughs> growth should be an oxymoron, right? Where's that big trade-off between fairness and growth we, we've always learned about? Yeah, so, so it is an often, uh, often highly debated topic, right? So does growth come at the expense of inclusion and vice versa? What we find is that they are not at odds. And so we posit that growth is actually at its best when it's most inclusive. And the more you're able to meaningfully engage and participate as workers, entrepreneurs, consumers, et cetera, you end up with an economy that is stronger and more resilient. And you found actually that inclus that the lack of inclusivity has uh, cost us a lot of growth. Uh, how, how much did you find? So what we find in some of our research is some of the inequalities that are so persistent in our economy cost us quite a lot. And so our prior research has found that if we were to solve the racial wealth gap between black and white families, that alone could unlock $1.5 trillion of annual GDP in our economy. And so that's value being left on the table by having persistent inequality. Yeah, and just to be clear, what we're talking about very specifically is increasing the income and wealth of minorities to where white folks are today, correct? That's absolutely right. And so this is incremental growth that we otherwise do not see in the economy. The economy is people, and the more people we fully include in it, the better it will be, which is an extraordinarily obvious thing to say. And- <laughs> sort of can't not be true, uh, but is at odds with the last 45 years of neoliberal economic policy. And certainly a lot of the sort of canonical concepts that come from neoclassical economics. So, you know, like, where did we go wrong? How did we <laughs> not recognize these basic truths? It's so interesting because the data actually tells a very different story, both domestically and internationally. Right. So if we look at our own economy, we know that 40% of GDP growth between 1960 and 2010 
can be almost directly tied to the greater participation of women and people of color in the labor force. Right. We've seen internationally, the World Bank has done quite a bit of good research on this topic, looking across you know 90 plus countries. And we find such strong correlations between mean income growth and the share of income for the bottom 40%. And so honestly, the data speaks quite clearly that who participates and the more we get people to participate actually does produce better outcomes. Yes. <laughs> and so it's actually quite puzzling about how we kind of have gotten lost to this the debate about there. And exactly. Lost <laughs> the story a little bit. But, but, but let's be clear, not just better outcomes for the people that are now being included in the economy, but better outcomes for, for absolutely everyone. everybody. To, to boil it down to the most basic terms, that when you take an excluded minority that is poor and make them thriving in middle class, you have created millions or tens of millions of you know, just call them new customers for businesses in the economy at the, at the most basic level. And yeah. how can that be bad? <laughs> right? Like it is quite puzzling uh, to think that that is really the argument that needs to be made, but it's worth reiterating, right? <laughs> it's just shocking that people don't understand this and that neoclassical economics sort of missed it. And so by inclusion, I presume you mean paying people more because that is the principal method by which we do include people in a market economy. Yes. So it is both thinking about how do we include people as workers, but also thinking about as entrepreneurs and who pursues entrepreneurial pathways as thinking about uh, folks as savers and investors and how they uh, realize the returns of their investments. Like There are all these dimensions in which exclusion actually has this negative implication, not just for the people that are excluded, but to your point, for our society as a whole. Chetty and his team have done quite a bit of good work, even just looking at the innovation component, right? So thinking about this idea of who pursues entrepreneurship and innovation, and what you find is things like race and gender and income leave us to the point where there are certain demographic groups or folks in certain geographies that not due to a lack of ability, but due to some of these other factors don't pursue innovation, right? And so you end up in a world in the US where 90% 90% of US-backed VC firms are headed by white nation men. And it's not that they don't have amazing ideas, but just think about all of the other ideas in terms of products and services and innovations that we aren't seeing in the market right. due to some of these other factors. So it's clear from your report, you found that uh, inclusive growth is this virtuous cycle. More people we include, the faster and more prosperous the economy grows for everybody. What did you find to be the main barriers to inclusion in the U.S. economy? We came at this actually in two ways. And so we, as part of the research, really put together a panel of 50 or more more, uh, economic development experts and practitioners. So heads of economic development organizations, leaders of CEO councils, uh, policy experts, academic economists. And so actually wanted to understand both why does economic development as a process not result in these outcomes? And then secondly, in terms of the outcomes themselves, why don't we see a more inclusive set of variables there? On the process front, what was interesting is in talking to practitioners that do this work, the biggest thing that came up was there actually just isn't buying in a commitment to include more people in how things are decided. And to your your point, uh, Nick, around part of this is actually inviting folks that have been historically excluded into the room, into the conversation. There seems to be a little bit a lack of that. And then secondly, was this idea of actually understanding what a good process looks like and where we are today was were the two other big gaps that we saw. 
I think interestingly, as we get to the outcomes, what we fundamentally believe is outcomes don't just magically appear. They manifest out of processes and the disparities that we see are the result of broken and often biased processes that people in communities have to navigate. And so particularly for groups of people in the US context, whether you're a woman or a person of color or someone with a different physical ability, they're facing a set of constant barriers that they're trying to navigate some of these systems and processes. So, so you're telling us this is unbelievable that if we want to include more people in the economy, we should include the people who've been excluded <laughs> in making the decisions on how to include them? Exactly right. And then taking their lived experiences to account as how we design the solutions that move us forward. This gets to the heart of the problem, of course, is that is that what you're calling for is more political inclusion. And there's a probably more resistance to political inclusion in this country right now than there is to economic inclusion. So JP, a couple of questions. So the first is, are you prepared to insist that there is a causal relationship between inclusion and economic growth? So I would say that the data suggests a strong correlation and that what we've seen in our work suggests that how we go about including or excluding groups of people in the economy has a material impact on the outcomes. I cannot say scientifically and statistically that it is causal because those relationships are complex and the economy is a interesting and very complicated machine. But I can say the correlations across both in the US and internationally are quite strong that suggests that there's, they are inextricably linked. Okay. And within McKinsey, did, does this come as a surprise, do you think? I mean, or, or you know, among elite economic, you, you know. You're trying not to use the word economists, economic yeah. thinkers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, do, do you think that this set of facts is surprising to people or do they kind of know it or um, does it make them happy or angry or <laughs> what? I think what we've seen is that at some level people get it, but in some ways they don't necessarily buy it. There tends to be this anchoring on, well, we can't have both. There's got to be right. some trade-off that we're seeing that we're not fully capturing. What I think we're realizing though, and we're seeing this quite a bit in the private sector as they're really leaning into trying to think about a more inclusive economy, is that there is immense opportunity not being captured. And there are expectations that are now changing such that even if at some level folks believe that there's this tension, their employees are expecting them to really lean into things like racial equity. Investors yeah. are expecting it. Uh, customers are expecting it. And so even if they are... <laughs> on the fence about you know, whether or not this really works. I think they're realizing both that there's immense opportunity at the table and at a moment where we need as much economic growth as we can coming out of uh, the pandemic, but also that the expectations of what their employees, investors, et cetera, expect of them has lifted. And so even if they're on the fence, they need to kind of lean forward and do this work. Yeah. Interesting. What are you presently finding are the most persuasive arguments? to get people to adopt this point of view? Are they yeah. sort of moral arguments or are they practical arguments about economic right. growth or? They tend to fall into two camps. There are folks yeah. that are convinced by the economic argument. And so what is the opportunity at stake, the value that could be contributed to our GDP, the new customers, et cetera, that you might be able to capture. But I think increasingly folks have realized, especially in light of the pandemic, that 
lives are really at stake, that there is a moral case to be made around the well-being of our neighbors and neighborhoods really does hang in the balance. And so living on the economic edge and what that means in terms of family security, we see shorter life expectancy, we see increases on dimensions of things like death of despair, like that it is not just a conceptual idea that, you know, an unfair economy has these negative consequences, but that there are actual human lives at the center of them. And I think those, the combination of those two arguments tend to kind of land with, with folks. For sure. I mean, we're in violent agreement that including more people in the economy in more ways uh, will be better for the economy and for people. And we, we absolutely believe there's a causal effect that, that in fact, inclusion causes economic growth. Um, yep. But, you know, like we have lived through this era, which is both policymaking and basically the economic frameworks have pointed basically in exactly the other direction. Uh, and shareholder value maximization, SVM, being sort of uh, just mm. a perfect example of that, right? Because, again, the principal way in which we, uh, in, you know, allow people to participate in the economy is how much we pay them. So where does McKinsey fall? Where does the business community fall when these two principles are in such obvious tension? Yeah, I think what's been encouraging and what we've seen especially in the past year, or that there are many Fortune 1000 companies specifically that are really leaning into the idea that being good corporate citizens actually creates opportunities. So we've seen you know, $66 billion in, from the Fortune 1000 in racial equity commitments between May of last year and the end of last year. And I think what is becoming increasingly clear is from a talent perspective, who I am able to recruit, groom, and then lead my organizations, that the fact that the more diverse uh, and inclusive that pool of talent is, the better I perform. And so we've done quite a bit of research on the benefits of kind of more diverse boards, more diverse leadership teams, and they actually do financially outperform uh, their peers. And so Mm -hmm. I think that point is landing. Increasingly, what folks are starting to think about is externally, what firms do in terms of their social responsibility, what they do in terms of their operations and their strategy is another set of real opportunities for new unlock, right? So if I think about from an operational perspective, who I supply from, where I make location decisions, and from a strategy perspective, how I bring products to market, what customer segments I'm going after, that they're realizing that there are real untapped opportunities that exist in the marketplace. And so I think increasingly this idea of there is value to be captured if I could do this well is really starting to resonate. And that's been encouraging to see, especially over the past year in light of all that's taken place. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of big corporations that have offices of diversity and inclusion. And I assume they're not doing this out of the goodness of their own hearts. <laughs> they're doing it because they believe it's good for the company to have diverse management. Exactly right. Right. There's a clear economic case of that. It helps with retention. It helps with uh, better problem solving. It results in you know, stronger profits. And so I think there's a clear case that that's been made on the internal side. I think increasingly we're seeing companies really start to make the case externally that things like their strategy and operations infusing inclusion and diversity there could have real benefits as well. Yeah. Interesting. So JP, let's imagine you're a, the benevolent dictator. You're the president of the United States and you have both houses of Congress. 
what policy agenda do you advance? What set of things do you do, concrete things, to make the economy more like the one in, that you envision? Yeah, no filibuster. Yeah. Also, so. <laughs> <laughs> what I'd say is to actually center economic development on communities. And so actually as a benevolent dictator, what I would not do is say, here are the sets of policies that everyone should go do. What I would rather uh, impose is for every community to actually go through a focused process in which those that have been historically excluded are in the decision-making seat. And they are helping understand where we are as a community, building off of their set of assets and lived experiences and setting a local and shared vision of what the future will look like. And then being at the center and designing a set of strategies and investments that reflect both those needs and their strengths, such that we get to a set of outcomes that really work locally. Uh, because economic development is hyper-local. And so really wanting to center what we do and what we invest in, in terms of what communities need, particularly those that have been left on the margins. Would it help also just to throw money at the problem? I mean, I saw, <laughs> I saw a report. I mean, uh, the, the people say that disparagingly, but I saw a report recently that there has been this spurt of uh, small business creation in uh, majority black communities during the pandemic, somewhat linked to uh, the pandemic relief. They had a little capital on hand, so they started small mm -hmm. businesses. Um, that seems to suggest that, you know, giving people capital <laughs> might be part of the solution. Totally. Economic resources can be very helpful, right? So we know that Black families have, on average, you know, an eighth of the wealth of white families. And that creates a ton of ripple effects in terms of their ability to invest in entrepreneurship, home ownership their own education, retirement, all of those dimensions. What I will say though is just throwing money at the problem doesn't necessarily fix the systems that result in the outcomes that we see, right? And so Fair you can point. throw money at trying to build more affordable housing, but until you change things like zoning and how we actually decide what gets built where and who gets to live where, uh, we won't fully solve that problem. So quick fixes are very appealing. What you're talking about doesn't sound like a quick fix. It's something that would take quite a bit of time, maybe even generational to address these issues. Um, how long a path do you see uh, uh, out there do you see, see towards solving this problem and creating a more inclusive economy? Well, I think getting to the final answer will take, there is a journey to get there. I do think there's quite a bit of short-term, near-term investments that are quite helpful, right? So the American Rescue Plan is going to invest $1.9 trillion into our economy. There are state and local governments that are getting 40, 50% increases in their budgets over the next several years than they're used to. And so think about how we spend those resources uh, and how we ensure that those resources reflect the needs of those that have been excluded historically. Uh, whether it's things like reskilling those that have been unemployed or connecting them back to the labor force or ensuring that, you know, challenges that we've seen in the pandemic, like digital access and learning loss are really recovered in the near term can be ways that we not only just not lose ground, but ensure that we're making strides, especially with the near term acceleration of some of the funding that we're seeing at the federal level. 
So this report and the, the conclusions of it, were these obvious to you before you looked at the data or like, how did the report unfold? Yeah, so we, we really set out to answer kind of three fundamental questions, right? So inclusive growth has become this mantra yeah. uh, in economic development circles and the private sector. And so we really want to understand what do people mean when they say inclusive growth? To the point we made earlier, are inclusion and growth at odds or do they actually work in concert? Correct. And then ultimately, how do we actually get that growth? And I think for me personally, having done this work in communities across the country, I've actually seen glimmers of where it's worked really well. Yeah. And so to, to give you a bit of an example, there's this work that was done out of Fresno, California. Uh, it's called Fresno Drive. It was developing the region's inclusive and vibrant economy. And they actually took a very different approach to economic development. They said, let's actually try to engage as many people in the community as possible. So they brought together 150 organizations. There was a 350 person steering committee, full day community planning sessions. And what was beautiful about that is they brought people in a room that didn't agree, that yelled at each other, <laughs> that you know, tears were shed in, in some of these moments, but ultimately did the hard work of bringing people together and bringing those and giving power to those that traditionally didn't have it and developed a set of tangible investment opportunities that would move the community forward. And what, I, what we've seen in that work is by really centering it in community, they've actually been able to not only gain investment in new ways, but actually drive implementation and execution where a lot of economic development falls apart is in the execution. Yeah. And so I've seen glimmers of how it's worked well. And so I think this research really helped solidify and, you know, talking to experts across the country that there are these impediments that we can break through if done right, provided me with a lot of hope around what this could look like moving forward. So why do you do this work? I am just deeply committed that we must do better. I'm mindful that, you know, today marks the one year anniversary since George Floyd was murdered. And we can't continue to live in a world where demographic characteristics, whether it's race, gender, physical ability, shapes our life outcomes. Uh, my wife and I recently had a son. And so I'm increasingly just thinking about what the world could look like uh, when he is growing up, uh, such that we have an economy that both supports the lives and livelihoods of all of its residents and provides a way for those that have been historically excluded to really thrive in ways that we just haven't set our systems up to do so. And so that's what powers me to do this work is a commitment that this can be done well uh, and can be done better. That's a terrific answer. Well, JP, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, congrats on the report, nice work. I hope your colleagues take it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, hope, I hope your <laughs> colleagues take it seriously, Nick. Yeah, well, I mean, it, JP, JP's uh, organization is a, is a nice conduit uh, to my colleagues. Um, That's true. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but uh, honestly, thanks for, thanks for um, putting your shoulder to the wheel on this stuff. I think it's a really consequential thing that you've done, and um, I hope you keep grinding on it, because the quicker we can persuade the world that the more people we include... Uh, the better off we, we all will be, the quicker we'll all be better off. So thank you again. Yeah. Thank you both. I'm always reminded of the book, Equality and Efficiency, The Big Trade-Off by the celebrated economist, Arthur Okun, uh, uh, you know, who basically argued that, you know, we could have 
some fairness, but it would come at the cost of economic efficiency. And that, you know, is sort of the bedrock idea of the neoliberal outlook on economics. And that, you know, the, the, the existing paradigm, usually in the best of cases among people on the left, is that, of course, we should have uh, inclusion, but it's this luxury that we can now afford because we have economic growth. And what's exciting to watch is even the McKinsey company, who, to be clear, has been at the center of some very, very, very bad corporate practices, come around to believing that in fact, including more people creates economic growth, that, that it's both the right thing to do morally, but perhaps even more uh, importantly, it's the best practical path to uh, greater prosperity. It turns out when people are, are included in the economy, you get a bigger and more prosperous economy. And a bigger and more prosperous economy is what people want. So include more people in it, and you get better outcomes. And another distinction I think you made here is, and uh, I know JP, he had to be all sciencey and McKinsey and saying there's a strong correlation, but he 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 wouldn't cop to uh, there being causation. Well, w- we don't have to be so careful, Nick. You and I, we're not economists. It's clearly causative. Traditionally, orthodox economists have this view that a a large and thriving middle class is a consequence of economic growth. And actually, they have that wrong and backwards, that a thriving and prosperous middle class is actually the primary cause and source of economic growth. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think that, you know, the neoclassical framework, which sees the economy as this closed equilibrium system you know, leads you to believe, again, as Arthur Okun argued, that believing that you can have both more fairness and more economic uh, efficiency is like believing you can have your cake and eat it too. But in fact, in an open system where energy is pouring into the system and well-constructed, you know, you create this virtuous feedback of increasing prosperity for everyone, that metaphor actually doesn't apply. That mm-hmm. that, that in fact... You know, a well-structured economy creates more cake for everyone in in greater and greater measure. Yeah. So uh, on on the subject of correlation, Nick, it's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that Oaken's book, The Big Trade-Off, was published in 1975, which is the exact year that we see median wages start to diverge from productivity. And so you see that the whole era of rising inequality starts in 1975 at the very moment that economists, policymakers, corporate leaders, politicians all start be- to believe in the myth of the big trade-off. Yeah. And it's incredibly encouraging uh, to see organizations like McKinsey coming out with these studies, finally uh, refuting and destroying that myth once and for all. Absolutely. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening.
See you next week.